good morning. Today's lesson, we're going to be studying from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Actually, we're going to start in, starting in verse, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 through chapter 10, verse 13. This is a lesson that means a great deal to me personally. I've been, since we've been going through 1 Corinthians, I've been waiting to teach this particular lesson because it's one that means a lot to me. About 30 years ago, as a young disciple in my late 20s, I took an Old Testament survey class, and uh, it had a big impact on me. It opened my eyes up to the power of the Old Testament, and in going through the stories in Exodus and Numbers about the wandering in the wilderness, and then tying it back into what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it helped open my eyes up to the power and importance and significance of the Old Testament for me personally and for Christians in general. And it was based on this story in particular and others like it that uh, it really motivated me in my early 20s to make a decision to devote a significant part of my life to studying the Old Testament to be prepared to teach it to Christians if God would open their door up to do that. And that God is has uh, uh, allowed me to have many years of studying the Old Testament and digging deeper. And after preparing and studying for it, uh, God did open the doors up, and I was able to teach this class and the lesson that we're talking about today. In one form or another, I I counted at least nine countries that I've taught this lesson in. Um, And as well as to students on many college campuses here in the Boston area. So this is a lesson that means a lot to me. It's really helped me uh, over the last 30 years. So it's it's a joy to be able to share it with you. I'm going to start reading in 1 Corinthians 9, which is the really the introduction to what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I'm going to actually back up to verse 19. Uh, which we covered in the last lesson, just to read that. So first first chunk of Scripture I'm going to read is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, through the end of, of uh, uh, verse 27. Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who were under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who were under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I might be partaker of it with you. Then in verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. I'm reading from the the New King James here. So, 
First, I want to understand, Paul is very passionately concerned about saving as many people as possible and all kinds of people, the Jews, the Gentiles, the weak and the strong. And as we've discussed over the last few lessons, he works day and night to do this. He forgoes the rights that he had for financial support to be able to take a wife along so that he can devote himself to saving as many people as possible. He makes great sacrifices, and he becomes all things to all men. To the Jews, he becomes like a Jew. To the Gentiles, he becomes like a Gentile. He takes this passion for the saving of souls and then directs it at his Corinthian hearers. So he focuses on the Christians, the people who are already Christians in Corinth, and he addresses them, and I think we can benefit from this as well. Paul calls them to have the same intensity about their own spiritual lives as he has about saving the lost. And he uses here four examples. The first example he uses, the first two examples are from athletics. He says, the first example is from running a race. He says, in, the, in a race, don't all the runners want, run, but only one wins the prize. He calls them to have the self-discipline of a champion athlete runner. Then he says, talks about a fighter. Maybe it's a boxer, I'm not sure what kind of a fighter it is. But he says, I don't fight as one beating the air. He points to the example of his own life to the Corinthians. And then last of all, the fourth example, he goes back to the story of the Exodus and the wandering in the wilderness, which is contained in Exodus in the book of Numbers. So he uses these four examples to call them to have an intensity and not to give in to, the, to spiritual lethargy. Back, back in his day. Now, some people hearing this may have had some, uh, some exposure to athletic competition. Maybe some people think, I can't relate to that at all. Well, you're going to have to wait for the, the other examples that he gives. He gives all kinds of examples. And the first two are about athletic competition. <clears throat> Uh, earlier in my life, I gave a few, uh, I, I'd say I gave it the best shot I had, but it wasn't very, wasn't very great to athletic competition. When I was a teenager in high school, I went to a school that was very focused on athletics, and so I wanted to do something, and I wasn't good enough to play basketball or football or baseball. I didn't, my coordination wasn't that good, but I figured I can tolerate pain as well as anybody can. So I went out for cross country, which is basically you push yourself. I had, I had reasonably long legs, so you push yourself, and the question is how much pain can you endure? Uh, so it's a very personal, uh, challenging sport. So but to give you an idea how well I did in cross country, back when I went to school, I went to a Catholic school where you had to wear a, 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 a tie, and my parents, for my birthday, gave me a, a tie pin with a turtle on it. So I'll give you an idea of, of what my parents thought of my cross-country ability, which was about right. <clears throat> so I went to college after that. And, I, and the same thing, I wanted to be, and it got even worse, because it was, this was a school that plays Division I NCAA-level sports. 
So there was no, absolutely no way that I was going to be able to be good enough to compete in any college sport. So I thought, well, okay, is there any sport that all you have to do is be able to endure pain because that's more of a level playing field? So I picked rowing, which was, uh, that's certainly an apt description of that. Uh, rowing, you, you basically, you do one motion that takes about two seconds and you do it over and over again to the point of practically driving yourself unconscious. So I, I was in rowing in college for two years, and uh, I thought between rowing and studying engineering at the same time, I was probably going to flunk out of school because it was more than I could handle, so I gave up rowing after the first two years. <clears throat> but I learned about, because we're rowing, not to go out and have a nice paddle on the water. We were going out to row to compete to win a race. That's a completely different experience. What that meant was getting up early in the morning, going and working out at 6 a.m., sometimes before the sun came up, having exhausting workouts, and then in the afternoon we'd go over to the football stadium and run up and down the stadium stairs at the football stadium to the point of where, where our body would, would cr- scream out or we'd feel like throwing up. Basically, that's what you do. You're pushing yourself to the absolute limit because you're trying to win the race. That's what it took. So I learned some things about myself in the course of doing that. And then later on in life, in my 40s and 50s, uh, going through a, a midlife crisis, I wondered, could I, could I still do what I did when I was in my 20s? So I, I joined a rowing club, uh, two different clubs, two different times in my life later on, and trained for the, for the head of the Charles. And uh, it was the same thing, just the intensity, the training, There's a huge difference between training for something where you're trying to win versus just going out for a nice jog. So those who've been involved in athletics can appreciate what it takes. It it determines what you eat, what you do with your time, the exercise. It's a matter of mental toughness and pushing yourself to the limit to be able to win. For those who are, have never been involved in athletics, this may sound overwhelming and may be discouraging to you. So Paul moves on from the example of athletics to, to pointing to himself of his own life, and then he uses the, goes back to the example from Exodus and Numbers in the Old Testament. Now, the, one of some of the differences are, Paul points out, well, first of all, Paul doesn't mention this, but... When I was out for cross country or when I was out for rowing, you're trying to beat another person or another team, and that's why you're competing. Now, in the Christian race that we have to run, we're not out to beat other Christians. We're not out to beat other people. We're not competing against other fellow competitors. It's not like that. So don't get the wrong idea. Another difference is Paul says that we do it to win a crown that's imperishable. Now, here we are in Boston, and one of the most famous athletic events in the world takes place every spring in Boston. It's the Boston Marathon, where the runners come from all over the world, elite runners, to run 26 miles. And you may remember from the front page of the paper, if you've ever been at the finish line down on Boylston Street in downtown Boston, that the winner gets a crown of leaves. It's a laurel crown, and that actually is a throwback 
Marathon, of course, goes back to ancient Greece, running the marathon. It goes back to the old Greek games and borrowing a page from ancient Greece. And, of course, Paul is speaking to the Greeks in, in Corinth. The winner of the Boston Marathon in the men's division, the women's division, get a crown of leaves, a laurel crown, just like the old days. Now, what happens to a crown of leaves? It looks beautiful when you put it on, but after a while, the leaves start to shrivel up, and it looks pretty pathetic, and you have to throw it away after a while. So he says the runners who compete in the race, they do it to win a crown that's perishable. But we do it to win a crown that is imperishable, a crown that will last forever, that won't fade away like the leaves of the Boston Marathon or like hardware that just clutters your house. If you win a a ribbon or a trophy or something like that, you want to get rid of when you're decluttering. Paul talks, uses similar language in Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, let's turn there. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7. Paul says, we're going to read verses 7 to 14. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself as having apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is the goal that Paul is pressing on for? He hasn't yet attained it believe that the goal that he's personally pressing on for is eternal life. His goal is heaven. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if only for this life we have hope, we are to be pitied more than all men. So Paul's goal was the eternal reward in heaven with the Father. And he says that he hadn't already attained it. Now, in 1 Corinthians, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's a verse that you may have missed. In verse 27, think about it. This is the Apostle Paul saying this. Verse, chapter 9, verse 27, he says, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Think about that. The Apostle Paul is concerned that he could preach to others, become a famous missionary, suffering and saving thousands of other souls, being an apostle of God. He's saying, I have to be careful that I don't lose my salvation, that I not become disqualified for the prize. 
Well, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that Paul doesn't think he's saved? He's not secure in his salvation? Does he have problems with, 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 with wondering whether he's saved or not? I'd like to give an, an illustration uh, of how I put this together about the question about, some people will, will ask the question, well, are you secure in your salvation or are you insecure in your salvation? Do you believe that you're saved or are you wondering whether you're saved or not? Let me answer that with, a, with, a, with a, an illustration. Once a month, I take a train down to New York and New Jersey from Boston. It leaves at 6.10 on Friday morning. And I go down to work in New York City and visit my mother in New Jersey. And so I take the train down. It leaves promptly from South Station at 6.10 Friday morning. So what am I thinking at 5.30 in the morning as I'm scrambling to pull everything together to get out the road and to hit the traffic on 93 heading into Boston? I'm wondering if I'm going to make the train or not. And even if I have a few minutes, I usually I know about I know exactly how long it's going to take me, so I don't usually plan. As Allison knows, I don't plan a whole lot of extra spare time. So when I get down there and get dropped off and get on the train, maybe it's five after six, and I get on the train. I sit down. I've got my ticket in hand. I put I put my my bag away, and I sit down, and I breathe a sigh of relief that, that before the train has taken off, I've gotten on the train now. Before I get on the train, I'm insecure and nervous and wondering if I'm going to make it to New York or not or if everything's going to, everything's going to fall apart with my plans for the day. But once I make it onto the train, I feel that the pressure has been taken off. I feel a certain sense of relief. Now, if I get on the train in South Station, does that mean I'm automatically going to end up in New York City, my destination? Well, yeah, kind of, kind of yes, kind of no. And what happens if the train, I'm feeling kind of hungry, and the train pulls into New Haven Station, and I notice that there's a really nice donut shop that's right by the train station. I think, you know, if I jump off the train here and get a donut, I'll bet that donut would taste really good. If I leave the train before it goes to New York, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it on the train. So, or let's say I stay on the train, but I start abusing the other passengers on the train. If I start pushing and shoving and beating up on the other yeah, passenger on the train, that's right. They're going to ask me to leave and to get off the train with my bags at the next station. So I could get kicked off the train or I could jump off the train. It's the same thing in our relationship with God. That our, my, when I board the train, that's great. But I have to remain on the train and I have to follow the rules of the train. Now, there aren't a whole lot of rules on the train, but I have to follow the rules on the train in, in terms of how I treat other people and the conductor and everything else. Jesus, according to Jesus... It's, it's like that in our relationship with God. In John chapter 15. Start reading in verse 1. Jesus said, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch that does not bear fruit, 
He takes, and, uh, he takes every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may be, it bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my birds abide in you, and you'll ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you shall bear much fruit, so you'll be my disciples. As the Father loved me, so also I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus talks about salvation as a relationship. He is the vine, we are the branches. He says, if you abide in me, or some translations will say, if you remain in me, then you will bear fruit. If you remain on the train. He says, if you... Obey my commands. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So Jesus says that after we enter into a relationship with him, we must remain in him. We must abide in him. We must keep his commandments. And he says, if we do that, then we will bear fruit. So, the branch can be secure, but it's based on a condition. So, do we have security in our salvation? Yes, we do, if we follow the conditions that Jesus gives us. We have to remain in him. Second Timothy, Paul says really the same thing. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says, this is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Verse 12, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So Jesus Christ is faithful. Our salvation is secure if we meet the conditions that are here. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we endure, we'll reign with him. Jesus says the same thing to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 or chapters 2 and 3. So we have to remain in him, and if we don't, we can be disqualified, as Paul said. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 1 to 13. This is the fourth example after Paul talks about the runner about the fighter, about his own personal example, he reminds them of the example of the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament. First Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. 
But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, these people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. So I want you to, to get, get a, a picture of what Paul's talking about. He's saying basically the story of the, the, the story of the Exodus journey. The people are in Egypt, they pass through the Red Sea, they travel through the wilderness for 40 years, and then they end up in the promised land. Paul is saying this is basically, this was written down for our benefit. Essentially, this is a map of the Christian life. It's given here for all time for us and for our benefit. The point that he's making here is they were all baptized by all of them. The Bible says there were 600,000 men besides the women and children. They were all baptized. They all passed through the water. It was this a foreshadowing of baptism. They had a wall of water, and they walked through the middle. And they were all baptized in the cloud and the sea. Jesus says no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again of water and the Spirit. Peter says you're baptized, repent, be baptized, be immersed in water, and you'll receive for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. This is the water and the Spirit here. So the pillar of cloud and fire is pretty clearly representing the Holy Spirit. He says they were all baptized in the cloud and the sea. The point he's making is just because you were baptized in the water and the Spirit, and you have the Spirit and you're eating the spiritual food and drinking the spiritual drink, and you have the Spirit and you have Christ, don't think it's an automatic that you're going to reach the promised land of heaven. Out of the 600,000 who were baptized in the story of Exodus and Numbers, out of the 600,000 men who were baptized who made it through the water and ate the spiritual food and drank the spiritual drink, how many of them made it into the promised land? Two out of 600,000 made it into the promised land. Talk about a sobering lesson. Paul says this lesson was put there for your benefit. It's put there for our benefit for the Christians. Just because you've been baptized, just because you're part of the church, doesn't mean you're automatically going to make it to the end. You better be careful because all we are now is we're just in the wilderness, the time of testing to see if we're going to make it to the end. This is just the beginning of the journey. When I was in Albania, uh, I was very interested. I've been doing a lot of teaching on the five books of Moses. When I was in Albania, 
I was talking to a gentleman who was teaching at an Orthodox seminary there, and I said, do you know any, uh, any good early writings that talk about Moses? And he said, well, actually, there's a translation of uh, Gregory and Nyssa's Life of Moses. So I got a copy of that and read it. And he talks about the story here, and he makes some interesting, uh, he draws some interesting points in it. I'll, I'll share with you some of them. It's basically, just as he said here, that the, that the Red Sea uh, symbolizes baptism and that the pillar of the cloud represents the, the Holy Spirit, which was leading them through the water and then guiding them through the, through the time of the wilderness. But what do you think the time, what do you think Egypt would represent? This is before they passed through the water. What would Egypt represent? The slavery. Slavery. This is the time of slavery. And Jesus says, all who sinned are slaves of sin. It's the time of being enslaved to sin, the time of slavery, of bondage. It's the kingdom of darkness. When the pillar of cloud separated the Egyptians from the Israelites, it put the Israelites in light and kept the Egyptians in darkness. So it's the kingdom of darkness. Now, who do you think Pharaoh the ruler of the kingdom of darkness, who does not want to let the people go. Who do you think that might possibly be? Satan. Satan. That's right. Okay, so he's making these points here that Egypt is the old life, and Satan doesn't want to let the people go. He's, char- he's sending his troops charging into the water to try to, to, to stop the people from leaving. But what does God do with the water? He parts it. He parts the water to let him through, and then after the good guys are through, he brings the water back again. He takes the wheels off the chariots of the Egyptians, and he drowns the Egyptians, which is a representation of what happens. That Many things happen in baptism. One is that the power of Satan is destroyed. We're redeemed from the land of slavery. It is the dividing point marking the kingdom of darkness from the kingdom of light. It's a place, it's, a, it's somewhere that, that a death takes place, as it says in Romans chapter 6, that we are buried with him in baptism. It's death, it's rebirth, it's delineation, it's transition. All these things happen at baptism. And the other thing is, there was only one way out of Egypt. It was through the water. There's no other way out. So the lesson for us, first of all, You have to pass through the water if you want to get out of the land of slavery. You've got to be baptized. Second of all, just because you've been baptized and have the Holy Spirit, don't be complacent. Most of them didn't make it to the promised land. So we need to pay special attention to their journey. Paul mentions four sins specifically that disqualified them. We need to study these four sins and go back and study the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers because this is the map of our own journey. We're in the wilderness. We're in the book of Numbers trying to make it to the promised land. That's where we are right now. People in the past, many people would would mock me, uh, Christians, for studying the Old Testament a lot. They think, think, uh, well, gee, Chuck, you know, 
Don't you understand about the grace of God? Don't you understand about the importance of Jesus? Why are you studying the Old Testament so much? Well, the Old Testament is all about Jesus. It's, it's saturated with references to Jesus, as you can see in the story right here. The rock in the story was Jesus himself. This is the story of, of our own salvation. And people would even say to me, Chuck, what are you doing? You're having your quiet time in the book of Numbers? Like that's some kind of a put down. Well, actually, the Numbers is incredibly important for Christians because it, it's showing us where we are and the temptations and the perils that we can learn from that we don't fall into the same thing. How did Paul know that the story of Exodus and Numbers, the whole story of the wandering in the wilderness, how did he know that this was a foreshadowing of the Christian life? Actually, it's Paul makes Paul develops it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 4, it's touched on as well when it talks about don't be complacent. And also in Jude verse 5, it's mentioned there too. Don't make the same mistake. We need to earnestly contend for the faith once for all entrusted to the saints, not be like the people in the wilderness who fell. So it's mentioned three places in Scripture. I have a, I have a, a theory about perhaps how he may have figured this out, besides just being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's turn to Psalm 78. Okay, Psalm 78 there's a very mysterious line in the beginning of the psalm, which Jesus actually quotes. Give heed, O my people. I'm reading from the uh, version based on the Septuagint here. Uh, it's Psalm 78, most Bibles, 77 in the Septuagint. Give heed, O my people, to my law. Incline your ear to the words of my mouth. I shall open my mouth in parables. I shall speak of hidden things from of old. What things we heard, these also we knew, and our fathers described them to us. So, Jesus quotes this when they ask the pe people, want to know, why are you speaking in parables? And he mentions this right here. That he speaks the parables, I shall open my mouth in parables, I shall speak of hidden things from of old. I think that's in, in uh, Matthew 13, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think it's, it's quoted in Matthew and Luke both. So, it says, I shall open my mouth in parables. He says, give heed on my people, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I shall open my mouth in parables, speak of things hidden from of old. This is Asaph who's writing this. Now, what does Asaph spend most of the rest of this psalm talking about? He just said, pay attention, listen I'm going to speak to you in parables, things hidden from of old. Most of what he talks about in this story, believe it or not, is the story of the Exodus. Parables, hidden things from of old. He talks about parting, passing through the water, the cloud and the pillar of fire the rock that the people drank from, the fact that they tested God, that God provided manna to feed them in the wilderness, that they rebelled against God in the wilderness, and he led them out like a flock of sheep. He mentions all of that in this story right here. And most people will totally disconnect the first two or three verses from everything that follows. But uh, I think 
he's doing exactly what he says. He says, pay attention to what I'm saying, things hidden from of old, parables. It's right here. So, here we are in the wilderness. Most of those who are, are listening to us, to, the, to this, have been baptized, but we haven't reached the promised land, the goal of our journey yet. So Paul says there are lessons for us. Don't fall into the four sins that they fell into. The first sin that he mentions in verses 6 to 8, first thing he mentions are the four, the four things they have to watch out for. In um, verse, verses 6 to 8, he says, These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. These people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He's, that's a direct quotation from the Old Testament. These people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Do you remember what story he's talking about there where they did that? It's the story of the golden calves. Joshua and Moses go up on Mount Sinai. Uh, Aaron has the people chip in their golden earrings and jewelry and, and, and ornaments. They fashion a golden calf. In Exodus chapter 32, and they hold a celebration to God. And Moses and Joshua come down, and Joshua said, Hey, what's this loud noise? It sounds like is it is there is there people, is there a war going on? Or and, and Moses says, No, it's this is the sound of a big drunken revelry, a drunken orgy that's going on here. So they created golden images and are worshiping God in the form of these golden images. And of course, Moses is incensed, smashes the Ten, the ten Commandments when he comes down out of anger, takes the golden images, smashes them, grinds them into dust, throws it in the water, and forces the people to drink the water. So, But that's the where the line comes from. The people sat down to eat and drink and, and rose up to play. That was the, the, the drunken revelry and orgy that was taking place at the time of the the golden calves when God was upset with the people. So that's the first the first uh, problem was he says don't create idols, don't worship idols. Now in Corinth that was a bigger problem perhaps than it is in Boston, but it's still a problem in lots of the world. Uh, one of my favorite lines about idolatry is from Clement of Alexandria. I think he was writing in the uh, late late 100s, uh, if I'm not mistaken. It's in An An Nicene Fathers, Volume 2, page 196. And he's talking to people in ancient Greece where idolatry and worshiping gods and statutes is a big problem. This is a good one-liner. He says, he's speaking to the, to the Greeks, and he says, you should learn from the birds which fly to these statues and void their excrement on them. So talk about... <laughs> Look at the birds of the field. He says, you should learn from them. They're smarter than you are. That's a, a good point. And he makes the comment that all of these idols that they worship, things that are made out of gold, silver, ivory, and jewels, or even today, I think of the New Age religions that worship the earth. Uh, Clement said, 
He said to, to the, the people who are worshiping parts of the earth, basically, rocks, stones, things like that, he says, you know, I've been in the habit of walking on the earth, not worshiping it. So it's a uh, uh, good, good things to remember when we run into people who are struggling with venerating statues or gods or idols or anything like that. Of course, Colossians chapter 3, Paul reminds us that covetousness or greed is equivalent to idolatry. In Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about verses 22 to 27. He says, The beginning of the degradation of mankind was worshiping created things rather than the Creator. That was the beginning of the slide downward. And really, that's what greed and idolatry are, is you're elevating created things before God himself. So that's the first lesson, is idolatry, uh, which Paul ties also to greed in Colossians. The second one is immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 8. He says, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Let's turn to Numbers chapter 25, the story he's talking about. It's a very important study, uh, very important passage in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 25. I'm going to read verses 1 to 13. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to the Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out of the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to the Baal of Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and the sight of the congregation of the children of Israel, who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation, took a javelin in his hand. He went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through. The man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel, and those who died in the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel, because he was zealous with my zeal among them. So I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him a covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for God and made atonement for the children of Israel. It's a very powerful story. Just I want you to imagine that. It says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, In one day 23,000 died, and this account it says 24,000 died, so maybe 1,000 people died on the, on the other day. I don't know. A couple of weeks ago, my wife Allison's mother went on a bus trip down to New York City, and it was to see the monument for the September 11th attack on the World Trade Center, where almost 3,000 people died. And on that site, 
They created a monument so people would not forget. Now, I don't know what the lesson of September 11th is supposed to be for us, what we're supposed to do with that. But here, God created a monument not of 3,000 people dying, but of 23,000 people dying in one day. It's basically eight World Trade Centers happening in the midst of a very small nation. Paul says that this happened for our benefit. This is a monument for all time to teach Christians the dangers of sexual immorality. Now, only 23,000 people died in one day, or 24,000 people died altogether, because God stopped the plague when a man named Phineas rose up and put a javelin through the man and the woman that he was committing immorality with. The God says, now there is a man that has the zeal about this sin that I have. This is the attitude that I have about the sin of sexual immorality, and that's what brought an end to, to, the, to the, the plague of death and destruction that was rained down on them. And this is a lesson for us, first of all, about the tremendous destruction and danger of the sin of sexual immorality. We have to root it out of our lives. We have to root it out of the church. And we need desperately men in our midst who have the same attitude about sexual immorality that God does, the same attitude that Phineas did, who are not afraid to stand up and address it boldly and correctly. One of my great heroes in the Bible in this area, in addition to Phineas, who confronted it dramatically, is, is Joseph, who when he was tempted, he ran away. And he wouldn't stand any time with Potiphar's wife, that he fled even without his robe because he didn't want he was fleeing from sexual immorality. I am assaulted every day, it seems like, with some kind of temptation for lusting or sexual immorality. I went, I go to the store, I'm just buying a part in an auto supply store, and the way that the person at the counter, the woman at the counter is dressed, is so outrageous that it's a temptation, it's a struggle. I'm just going to buy a car part. I'm not going to I'm not going looking for trouble or anything. Or I'm going on a news site on the internet. I mean, I don't I don't go to the movies anymore, watch watch television. But just going on a news site, which I think is a neutral site on the internet, there's all this all this stuff that's being thrown at me. We're being attempted, we're being tempted and assaulted all the time, visually, men by through the internet through the way people are dressing around us, and we have to carry with us the spirit of Phineas, that we, we, we hate this sin, and be, be confessing it, the temptations, and talking to each other about it. And, and if we care about it, if, if we're going to be our brother's keeper, asking our brother, how are you doing in this area of your life? So that's lesson, lesson, number, lesson number two is about, about sexual immorality. Clement... Alexander was talking about, you can get, you just, I've been reading Clement kind of recently. He said, uh, he said, pleasure is an auxiliary. It's like salt 
that's seasoned on food, meaning you just put a little bit on, on the food. He said, when someone casts off restraint, when, when, when pleasure casts off restraint, when basically you, you take the whole salt shaker and dump it on the food, you obviously you ruin everything. He says that the, the desire for tre- pleasure will try to rule the house and it will lead to evil lusts and self-indulgence. And this is basically the Epicurean attitude of life. The Epicurean philosophy is the goal of life is to maximize pleasure. The goal of Christian's life is not to maximize pleasure. It's to lead a holy and righteous life. And maybe a little pleasure is sprinkled here or there, but that's not what, that's not what the purpose of our life. That's not what it's all about. Clement had a, had a quote, he said, Peace and freedom are not otherwise won than by ceaseless and unyielding struggles with our lusts. I mean, really, isn't that what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the last verse, where he says, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Isn't that what he's talking about? So we talk about idolatry and immorality. The other two sins are related to each other. In verse 9, it says, Nor let us tempt Christ. Some translations or some versions will say, Tempt Christ, test Christ, or test the Lord. Basically, the word can be translated tempt or test. So what does that mean, testing God? Well, basic, basic principle is God tests us. We don't test God. That's out of bounds. The same word is used here in Matthew chapter 4 when Satan comes and tests Jesus or tempts Jesus. And he says, he takes him to the highest point of the pinnacle. He says, he says, throw yourself down and the angels, that's right, throw yourself down and the angels will lift you up. He's, he's saying, go ahead and prove yourself, prove that you're the son of God to me. Go ahead and do this. And this is a test I'm going to give you. And Jesus comes back and says to him that you will, he goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the quotation and says that do not test or tempt the Lord your God. So his basic idea is we don't do that. The people were constantly testing God in the wilderness. Prove it. Okay, you did this miracle in the past, but do another one for us. Prove, prove to us, Moses, that you're from God. Take care of us. They're constantly testing God. The example that he says he uses here, he says, let's not tempt Christ. And some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. That's the story in Numbers chapter 21. We'll take, let's take a look there. Numbers 21. Starting in verse 4. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. What was the worthless bread they're referring to? This is manna. This is this referred to in, in Psalm 78 as the bread of angels. Now, 
wasn't bad tasting. It's described that it says it tastes like something with honey and olive oil. So it wasn't, wasn't unpleasant tasting. But they were having manna for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week for 40 years. They were getting bored and tired of eating the same thing all the time. So that's what they say, our soul loathes this worthless bread. This was the bread that's sustaining them, that's miraculously provided by God in the wilderness. Verse 6, So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people died. So, lesson, lesson about that, about testing the Lord, is that they were testing the Lord, and the Lord said, don't do that, and kill them with with the uh, uh, fiery serpents. And then the fourth one, the fourth one is in 1 Corinthians, the, the fourth and last one, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now this is one you think, wow, those are, those are three really serious sins. What's this fourth one doing in here? It says, nor complain. As some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. In some translations, it will say murmur. Now, what did they complain about? When they got to Egypt, that the people were really. When they got to the prophet, that the people were really big. Yeah, well, they, they complained about all kinds of things. That's right. When they sent the spies out, the people complained that the that the people were too big. In uh, the book of Numbers, that's a great example. They complained that, they said, let's pick a leader and let's go back to Egypt. This is a bad plan. We don't like the plan. We don't like uh, that the, the people are too big. They complained about the food. We don't have any food. They complained that they didn't like the food after they got the food every day. They complained that they didn't have water. They complained about Moses uh, with Korah's rebellion. We don't like the person who's leading us. Hey, don't all of us have, have uh, God's spirit? Why in the world are you? They complained about Moses' wife. People were complaining about everything. They had a complaining, murmuring, grumbling spirit. So he says, don't complain. And uh, actually, the complaining, as I read this, uh, let's look at Numbers chapter 14. Complaining may have killed more people than the other three combined. Uh, Numbers 14. Verse 1. This is after the 12 spies come back. Joshua and Caleb say, hey, we, the Lord can, can deliver the land to us. The other 10 say, let's, pick, let's forget about it. Numbers chapter 14, starting in verse uh, 1. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night, and all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, If only we died in the land of Egypt, or if only we died in the wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to each other, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. So that was, that was uh, not a good idea. And as a result of that, God says in verse 26, 
Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number, from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb the son of Jephthah and Joshua the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I'd make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said will be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness." And your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness for forty years and bear the brunt of your infidelity until you're consumed in the wilderness. So, really it was the complaining that wiped out the largest number of people. This is not 23,000 people. This is everybody except for two. Now, the encouraging part of this story in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is all very sobering to me. If it wasn't for this last verse, I would leave rather uh, somewhat discouraged by all of this, honestly. Verse 11, now all these things happened to them. This is the four sins and the punishments that fell upon them. All these things happened to them as examples and were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape so you may be able to bear it. This gives me tremendous hope and encouragement. The Bible says, Paul says, God is faithful, meaning God always keeps his promises. God is a faithful God. He's always kept his promises. He will always keep his promises. And he reminds him of that. He says, God is a faithful God. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Whatever temptation you're facing, you're not the only person. No temptation except what is common to man. It doesn't matter whether it's a temptation for fornication or adultery or homosexuality or fits of rage or complaining or some form of idolatry. Whatever temptation you're facing in life, Paul says God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He'll provide a way out. It won't be more than you can handle. You have to seek and figure out what that way out is. It may involve immersing yourself in the word of God, confessing your sins to to, to your brothers. As he who conceals his sin does not prosper, whoever confesses and renounces it finds mercy. But one way or another, God will provide a way out. So God is not, we don't have to be insecure about our salvation, but we've got to take it seriously. And, and then, just, just as, a, as, as a close to this, remember that God has given us this roadmap for our benefit. And it's important to learn the lessons 
from the story of the Exodus and the numbers and the wandering in the wilderness so we can make it to the promised land in the end. Amen.